0: Get on with it, Mecca. I will do. It doesn't seem that long ago that you could go to the circus. And apart from the Flying Ambersoles, or whatever the high trapeze flying family was called, you could see horses and dogs and monkeys and elephants and lions. No more. can only be just ten years ago that I would, on my way to work, drive past the circus parked at Tempe in Sydney in open space, now infilled with paths and gardens and... Please. And there were three or four lions and lionesses... Inside their fence, laying out in the sun. You know, they weren't working during the day, they work in the evening. Rolling on their backs and seemingly enjoying life. No more. I met Steve Lavers back then, animal trainer. I'm at the circus where every young kid's dream, I'm talking to Steve Lavers, is that right? Yeah,
1: Steve Lavers, I am, yeah.
0: And you're the animal trainer, Steve? Yes, I'm
1: the animal trainer. Oh, there's very few left now, but yeah, um, there's only four Australian animal trainers, which we do have a few overseas animal trainers here in Australia.
0: So firstly, uh, tell, me, uh, tell me your circus story. How, how, how did you end up in the circus?
1: Yeah, okay, well that's a quite interesting one, because where the circus used to camp was, you know, like at the same place where I used to stay. And I oh, well, me and Shane, the owner, oh, Lindsay Lennon's son, who owns the circus. His son, I became my best friend. And I was 11-year-old and they were heading away, you know, like out in the bush away from the city.
0: Where was the city here, was it? Yeah, oh, the
1: city was actually at Kemp's Creek in Liverpool, yeah, over in the Liverpool region. And, um, yeah, and then when they were heading away so our mum and dad, you know, virtually said, oh, well, if you want to go, go, or, you know, and um, yeah, so I did, so I was 11-year-old, so it was like a dream come true, you know, I'll ru- so run away and join the circus, <laughs> yeah, um, and then I uh, will later on, you know, like I was doing the catching on the flying trapeze, you know, because you learn a lot when you're all around watching, and then from the flying trapeze, you know, I went into other performers. Um, a I used to do and then yeah ended up being a a wild animal trainer with lions and all that stuff and actually yeah I'm working with lions monkeys and we've got alpacas and it just feels good you know to be uh, tied up and involved with a traditional circus this circus is 114 years old Um, you know uh, it's the oldest travelling circus left in Australia Um, it's still going strong and oh, there's only two circuses with wild animals and you know so it's good to be part of one of the circuses like there's about 16 circuses in australia oh, but the kids still want to see the wild animals the flying trapeze, the clowns the jugglers and all that sort of stuff so you yeah, know it's good to be part of you know, well,
0: you can see the kids' looks on their faces when they see the animals. They just love the alpacas come out. It's just something special, isn't it?
1: Yeah, all it is, you know, like it's good working with the lions and, you know, we've got the geese, you know. Like I see people that come around the back and they can stand there like for half an hour just staring at geese where they're in every pond all around Sydney in the rivers and stuff like that. You know, but the people will still come down and look at the geese and the monkeys and lions, you know. Um, all the animals are on display you know they're open all in a, a daylight hours you know people can feel welcome to come down and they're out in their exercise yards
0: how did you feel the first time you uh, confronted a lion with a chair and a whip or whatever you do oh yeah
1: no, the chairs and the whips are gone um, well, I don't use no whips there's no, well, there's no whips in my training I'll, everything's done oh, with the food rewards, you know. You. Um, yeah, so it's just hands-on, yeah. There's no sticks, no whips, no nothing, you know. Oh, it's me versus beast, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, You've just got to learn to respect it, just like a dog, you know. Yeah. You just give them the respect, and yeah, they give you respect. I tell them to heel, sit, you know, all that yeah. same stuff. It works the same.
0: Go and fetch, go and get the paper. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I will fetch and all that stuff, but yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what they're going to fetch, you know. <laughs> but yeah, um, no, I mean, I've got three young lions. I'm just t- training now. They're only two-and-a-half-year-old and they're coming along very strong like they're in front of the audience they love the public response um, you know because the people are looking all day around them you know so they're used to the public and all that stuff yeah so the animals you know like they're going fine you know like and the horses and the monkeys yeah you know they're going real good so
0: you like uh, you like the circus you like the animals what about life on the road how's that
1: Oh well, life on the road's good, you know. It's sort of. all well, it makes me wonder because a lot of people you see, like when you get up around the Kimberleys and across the Nullarbor, you see a lot of elderly people, 65 onwards to about 80. They're struggling in their four-wheel drive and all this stuff. And you get talking to them at campsites and that, and they say. You know, I worked all my life as a solicitor or, uh, you know, like all these different, you know, tr- truck drivers and all that. And you go, oh, yeah. And they go, how many times have you been around Australia? I go, well, I've been 15 times. I'm, I, I'm actually scared I'm living life back to front because... Um, a lot of people work to their 65 and then they've got to try travelling Australia. I've been around 15 times and been paid to go around. You know, so, yeah, I was very good in that style, but who knows what I'm going to be doing when I'm 65. I don't know because I've already done it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that's our only concern, you know. Like, when we get old, so what are we going to be doing? But i I be never too old for circus, you know. Like, I was circus. There's always something you can do when you're old.
0: Steve, it's great to meet you. And yeah. uh, good luck on the road. Might see you somewhere.
1: OK, no worries. Cheers.
0: I wonder what Steve Lavers is doing now.
1: He tells stories so grand of this vast, timeless land,
2: and they call it Sunday with Macca.
3: G'day, Macca, how you doing? Good, thank you. I'm in Renmark currently, and it's overflowing by about a foot on the barges, and none of the boats are travelling because of the extent of water flowing over more. This is all from the La Nina, Queensland, coming down this way. And I've spoken to a couple of companies, Renmark Houseboats, and he reckons to me he's got four of them, and they're all going to be sitting idle for the next three months, looks like it.
0: Because of the amount of water in the Murray?
3: Yeah, and Renmark's already a foot over the concrete barges. Be a sight to see, Jim, I reckon. Yeah, we come up here for a cruise on a boat and they won't allow us. Hey, Macca.
2: It's Stuart here. I'm paddling down the middle of the Murray River.
0: A lot of water in the river.
2: There is. I'm actually just about 5 k south of Renmark right now, and I'm heading towards Murray Bridge. Mm -hmm. It is pretty full, and all the campsites along the way, um, all the lovely sandy campsites are underwater, so it's a matter of finding a dry spot just above the water. I started Mildura. Mm -hmm. I've been on the water now nine days. But in February, I was standing at the mouth of the Murray at Goul, where I looked up the river and I thought, jeez, I wonder if I can paddle that on a stand-up paddleboard, and here I am now.
0: So you're on a stand-up paddleboard. Hopefully
2: I'll be in Murray Bridge in a fortnight. The boat ramps at Renmark are all under, so people aren't going in there, and the lock's at one and a half metres, and it's normally at three, so it's pretty high. There's a radio show that Australians all know. If you're rich, or well, you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it... Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca.
0: Get on with it, Macca. I will. Good morning. Welcome wherever you are. There is a bit of water around the place, apparently. Uh, Birdsville races had a drop or two of rain, and uh, a lot of the roads out there, I think from Windora out to Birdsville, I think, the uh, yeah, you'll find yourself... uh, blocked there we've had a lot it's been an unusual year hasn't it the rain is just unbelievable and then when you think it's gone then it comes again and there'll be an east coast low or whatever whatever or just I'm over it I'm definitely over it as the sign said on the back of the car as I was driving behind it bring back the drought and that's a fairly harsh thing to say but hey Anyway, um, Macca, Eileen here. I live in Cadell, South Australia, but I'm on holidays and listening to your show from Cardiff in Wales. Thank goodness the internet connects us from afar. It's very hot here. I love the program as always. Eileen, you are, can the internet connects you from afar, but uh, unfortunately, for many people who have a phone at home, uh, it's not so good So we believe that that's why the phone box has been preserved and there'll be phone boxes for many years to come because the phone system doesn't work in all places Um, and maybe not even in your home. Lenore Taylor says, Ian, um, I heard a man called kangaroo stupid. I, I think he was driving along and kangaroos hopped out. He said stupid kangaroos or something like that. He probably didn't mean it in any negative way, says... Uh, Lenore and I don't think he did but it's a common phrase amongst some people kangaroos have instincts not a human way of intelligence I would say the human species is the most stupid because of the way they abuse the planet says Lenore uh, I just called from a phone box last week in Coogee to say day and share this poem oh isn't it uh, and her name is Mafanwi. is that how you pronounce it mafanwi yeah that's Welsh isn't it Yeah, see, there's one email from Cardiff and then Mufanwi emails me. Uh, She said she just called from a phone box in Coogee. Here's a little poem I wrote last year in lockdown to celebrate Wattle Day. I say it to my five-year-old only son, George. It's called the Wattle Fairy. Dear little Wattle Fairy, bobbing in the breeze, I found you on a morning walk towards old Coogee Beach. Bless your fuzzy humour, your steady springtime show, I learn that when I see you, my heart begins to glow. And here's the lovely Kel. Thank you, Kel. More late-breaking emails. Uh, Tomorrow, says Jennifer Rooks, uh, I fly from Brisbane to Rome to start a 1,000-kilometre walk from Grand St. Bernard Pass in the Swiss Alps to St. Peter's in Rome. 1,000 k's. It's known as the Via Via Francigena. Would that be a Francigena? I'm 68 and will walk solo and carry my backpack. This is not the first long-distance walk I've completed. I've promised to raise $10,000 for cancer, and to date I've walked $6,812. My donation page is called Walking to Rome for Cancer. There you go. That's um, what Jennifer's doing tomorrow morning. That was last week, so she'd be, she'd be just about to start. Walking, walking to Rome. For cancer, well, good on you. That's all I can say. I'll go to these uh, lovely. But look, we're going to talk about gold and amongst other things and people, uh, as we do. And our number thirteen hundred seven hundred triple two, wherever you are, uh, to set the scene for our talk about gold and Dr. Sandra Close. This was a call from Andy, uh, was it last I think it was last week, yeah. Have a listen. No, the week before, I think it was. I'm
2: about 120 kilometres east of Kalgoorlie in a region called Canalpee. I'm out looking for gold for a uh, geologist back in Perth. I do it for myself, but all my finds are on mining company land, so I report them back to the geologist in Perth and he looks at the nuggets and can tell how they ended up where they were and then based on that, they do exploration with drilling rigs i've got the bug bad it's uh it's so bad that i'm actually out here by myself it's just me and a an emu that's taken a fondness in my camp and keeps lurking around every morning but it's uh it's a great life i'm right up the top of a hill at the moment with a couple of bars of 3g which allows me to call into you but other than that there's uh, no reception so all the nuggets i find i keep myself that's sort of my payment for the expense probably found over about 200 bits so far and uh, every morning it's exciting when you head out onto the ground and um, you never know what you're going to turn up. The tail with gold is where you find gold, you find more gold. So they're after the fine gold. So the nuggets on the surface can paint a picture where the gold's come from. And uh, yeah, they come in and drill holes deep into the ground, hundreds of metres. And they analyse all the soil and um, try to find um, deposits that are commercially viable to mine.
0: Yeah, well, the diggers and dealers has just been on around where you are, hasn't
2: it? Yeah, it has. I've I've got the bug that bad. I went along to that as well for a bit of a life experience. <laughs> so uh, that was uh, pretty good. Um, but yeah, we're just small timers, really. It probably wasn't our place to be, but uh, it was still good for the experience. Everyone was upbeat and positive about the mining industry and all the employment and um, jobs it gives people in the Kalgoorlie
0: region. That was Andy a couple of weeks ago. He said I wasn't supposed to be there. He felt like an interloper, but um, th- but there you go, a life experience to go to the di- diggers and dealers. And I've had a few guests in my studio this morning. One's Jim Pollock, who's been pestering me for 10 years, to go to diggers and dealers, and I haven't made it because it's, it's on a Monday. See, we do the Sunday, so I'd sort of miss it. Um, I'd have to get there on Sunday, and you probably can't get a room for Lovna money in Kalgoorlie on a Sunday, Um. I'd say, because of diggers and deals, but it's a mining industry thing. But gold plays a large part. And with him is his wife, Dr. Sandra Close, who's a gold expert. Well, I think Jim's a gold expert too, but Dr. Sandra is a gold expert as well. Um, She's uh, uh, got a PhD. She's written books called, uh, one's called Australia's Greatest Gold Boom. Uh, That's on the gold industry from 2001 to 2021. We've done a couple of programs over the years in, in Kalgoorlie and one out at Boulder and and Kilgardie. In fact, we went down a mine in Kilgardie and it was so scary. We went down a big, steep incline and the further down we went, the louder and noisier it got. But anyway, I'll introduce them. Uh, Dr. Sandra Close. Good morning, Sandra.
4: Good morning, Ian. It's great to be here and see you in person.
0: Oh, no, it's not. Um, That's a lie. And uh, Jim Paul. <laughs> Jim Pollock. Uh, yes. G'day, Jim. How are you? Yes, good morning,
5: Ian. Um,
6: <coughs>
0: excuse me. That's all right. <laughs> the reason Jim's coughing is because they went to the diggers and dealers and they both got COVID. Um, <laughs> and I warned them because I spoke to Jim. Jim said, rang me before and he said, oh, and then we're going here and we're getting in a plane and we're doing this and duddly-dum, diggers. How many are at diggers and dealers, Sandra? How many people usually go to that?
4: Oh, it was 2,600 this year, the biggest ever.
0: Wow. And this but, is because it's been cancelled for a couple of years, I suppose, oh, isn't yes, it? Oh, yes. Yeah.
4: We've been locked out. But yeah. in the early days, nearly 30 years ago, and we've been going ever since, so we are like the furniture. It was quite small, but it's grown extraordinarily <laughs> yeah. And now.
0: And gold must be a big part of it. Because, it is now, yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. There's iron ore and stuff like that, but but basically, and there, I think there's coal too in, uh, and all sorts of other rare metals in Western Australia, isn't it?
4: Oh, WA's got, got it all, but iron ore and coal, it's not so much diggers as uh, the base metals and nickel, of course, always, but gold, yes, and now all of the battery elements and so on. So it, uh, it varies over the years, but it's pretty vibrant most yeah. of the time.
0: How did you, how come you started in mining? It's, um, how does anyone start in mining? How are you interested in rocks, I suppose, were you, or that well, the story?
4: It goes back a long way, yes, yes. Um, I grew up in Sydney, went to Sydney Uni, as Jim did, and uh, was going to do physics, chemistry, maths, that sort of thing, yeah. and uh, started geology, one, because it was the subject I had to do. My parents went to lapidary, but that wasn't really the answer, oh. and uh, fell in love with it, really. Mm. The problem was you couldn't get a job. No. Well, not for me. Uh mining, mining had no women, uh, and I wanted to be a field geologist, so... Uh, I fought the battle and managed to to break the glass ceiling and get in as an exploration geologist. You're a
0: a champion. You're a champion. And it's funny about rocks, isn't it? Because we've got a little niece, and she's only... Well, she's a bit bigger now, but she was picking up rocks everywhere. (laughs) She'd pick up rocks and bring home home rocks. Um, Maybe it was just a thing. I don't think she was interested in the structure because she was too young for that, but, yeah. She started with rocks. Who knows what she'll do,
4: but they tell the story of yeah. what happened in the last 4.6 billion years Isn't it and much- we're getting better and better at working out what they're telling us but once you get into that it's so fundamental it's mm. like astronomy as well yeah and so much flows from that where we live why we're here what we do what the place looks like
0: I, I, I don't know why I read a poem by Kate Llewellyn uh, the other day called Stardust and I thought of the the Woodstock song which you're of an age oh. where you at least if you didn 't go to Woodstock, you would have heard about it and and that song you know by the time we got to Woodstock, and one of the the line in it is um, "We are stardust, we are billion year old carbon um, mm-hmm. which and when I think about you know explanations of what we 're doing here and how long we 've been here, and I think of the sun and I heard, you hear all these your mind boggles about all those things It yeah. says, "Oh, look at this, and I think of the size of the sun, and somebody said, oh it takes a, a a, a ray of light, you know two and a half I don't know, but something ridiculous, two and a half years to get out of the sun, you know before it starts on its way, just I just can't fathom the universe it's just it's beyond my ken, really, uh, when you start to think about the distances and the speed of light and the distance of other planets and but I like the idea of billion year old carbon because we 're all stardust and we'll end up somewhere else in. <laughs>
4: Oh well, it is. Well, Jim's the man on astronomy as well. He mm. looks up as well as looking down at the mm. rocks, and I'm I'm rather more onto the feet on the ground, rock side. So
0: now, tell us about gold because yep. everybody's uh, you know, as I um, mentioned from time to time, um, all the rivers run. Kel who wrote all the rivers run, um, uh, the author Nancy Cato. That's yes. right. She rang me yes, one morning right. many years ago, about twenty years ago, and she told me her story of life, but she told me about her grandfather. She said, oh, you had gold fever, and he left the family, and he went to... Gold fever's a big part of that, and I talk to people. Once they get out there fossicking, like young Andy there, he obviously, he was a policeman, but he loved getting out there looking for little nuggets and stuff like that, and it's something to do with gold. Now, you're a more, you're a more academically, you know, you know the deal about gold, but is there some part of gold fever that's entered your... Or is it more geology? Do you ever think about that?
4: Well... Because gold fever
0: is a real thing. Gold
4: gold is so entwined with the history of the world for some millennia, really, Mm. Mm. and it really does get people in fever-wise. I'd say, no, that's not my patch so much. But funnily enough, the chap you were talking to, he was out at Canalpey, Uh, east of, or well, northeast of Kalgoorlie. That was the very first bush camp I went to when I started working at the beginning of 67, out at Canalpie, And believe me, it was tough and rough out there in those days. Mm. So, uh, But there wasn't a gold boom uh, years ago. There was a nickel boom in the 60s, and then we've had lots of other different uh, metals and, and uh, commodities since. And gold really only came in again in Australia in the 80s. We had the first gold boom in the 1850s, which brought all the emigrants to Australia and really and settled s- the country.
0: And they said Melbourne was lined well, with streets were lined yes, with gold, didn't they? And it built Ballarat and Bendigo. Oh, and
4: Extraordinary. But that's the, the history of uh, mm. modern Australia. And then we had a second gold boom in the 1890s, 1900s, and that was when Coolgardie and Kalgoorlie joined in and uh, uh, that was a really big-time boom again. And all the Victorians went across from the gold in Victoria. Yeah. To Western Australia and became
0: uh, tother siders, and that's absolutely. how that's how um, Federation. That's uh, why we're a Commonwealth, exactly, yep. exactly. And in the last two years, you can see why well, we're not a Commonwealth. We're all <laughs> we're all separate countries. Oh, that was <laughs>
4: very sad, I reckon. But uh, today, gold. gold we're <laughs> yeah. now in the third gold boom, and we've had a, a gold boom for the last forty years, mm. and it's a big one. Yeah,
0: I'll say. So
4: there's a lot of people interested obviously in the professional side and mining and all of those are diggers, but also a lot of people out fossicking, uh, panning and uh, metal detecting. It Mm. gets them out in the bush.
0: When you said you went out to Canalpe as a youngster, a young girl, a young woman, um, you must have been really excited to sort of think that here you were and amongst all those blokes. What was that like?
4: Oh, well, I'd been camping... And doing all sorts of things like that all of my life with mm. my parents. So while I was very young, I'd be, had that life. The problem was I didn't look like it. I was a person that had done that, so that made it a bit difficult for some people. <laughs> um, so you, you should have worn
0: stubbies and big boots, big army boots, or something. And oh,
4: well, you always wore you always wore boots. <laughs> oh yeah, <You>
0: know, <laughs> Jim showing me a photo. No, you. you
4: uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh well, you sort of lived a double life. Once, sometimes you were a bush girl, and other times you were anything yeah. but, yeah, city elegant, so yeah. it was a really interesting life. But, yeah, that, you just had to learn. Yeah. Get in there and do it.
0: Jim Pollock, uh, tell me uh, your story, Jim. How did you get interested in gold and how did you you two get together? Were you doing a course right. together well, or something? Well,
5: my, my family has got a long history uh, of mining. My uh, grandfather was a mine owner uh, near Maitland. Uh, my uncle... Uh, took the university medal at um, uh, the University of Queensland in mining engineering, um, and uh, he he died some years ago. But uh, I, I I was always interested in rocks and uh, started off studying geology at, at Sydney University. And I saw this delicious young lady who. Not only was was very attractive, but she had brains, yeah, and that's brains. That, that's that's an unusual combination. Mm. Um, very see? confronting, too. Come on, it, okay. <laughs> well, well, um, and and we we both went through Sydney University, both graduated, then went our separate ways, and um, you know, Sandra worked all over the place in uh, in the USA and and then in the Republic of Ireland, and. Um, I did time in PNG and Iran back in the in the Shah's day, and then uh, was in London, uh, hoping to do uh, further uh, studies in in geology and and mining. Uh, but instead, I uh, I did an MBA at the the City University in in London, and while I was there, Sandra wrote me a, a letter saying, you know, I'm coming through London on my way back to Australia. She was in the U.S. Uh, you know, and I replied, "Well, have car, we will travel. Where do you want to go? Uh, do we go eat our way around Europe clockwise or anti-clockwise?" And that uh, was when? What? what when? That was that was nineteen seventy three. Yeah, I Did was act- I was actually work- fifty years ago. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Oh, those were the days. if if we knew. Then what we know now. No. oh, Sandra, Sandra would have been absolute dynamite. But but so we, Sandra spent a, a year in in Ireland, essentially applying what she had learned in the USA as regards lead and zinc, because there's a particular type of deposit that occur that occurs in the the southeastern part of uh, the USA. And Ireland looked like uh, you know a possible um, a possible repeat of the the type of deposit. So uh, she used to work in 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 Ireland in Dublin. Occasionally work up a bit of time and fly over to uh, to London, and uh, we sort of hit it off from there.
0: There you go. Look, we'll t- we continue talking to gold, <laughs> but I've got to take some calls. Um, off you, off you d- go, <laughs> Dr. Sandra Close is with me and uh, Jim Pollock. Uh, we'll talk gold and uh, maybe other things as well. Uh, our number this morning is thirteen hundred seven hundred triple two. Good day. This is Macker.
7: Hello, Ian. It's Lorraine Purcell calling from the Hill End and Tamborora Gathering Group. We've spoken before about Hill End and Gold.
0: Yeah.
7: And uh, I'm just ringing in to let you know that we're having a big celebration day on the twenty second of October this year mm-hmm. to celebrate hundred and fifty years since the emergence of the Halterman nugget or specimen, mm-hmm. actually what it is, yeah. um, in Hill End. That go. was the largest mass of gold um,
4: ever came out of the ground.
0: There you go. Uh, Sandra Close. you'd know all about that, wouldn't you, Yes, yeah,
4: been at Hill End when I was a girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. ah.
0: <laughs> well, well
4: t- it's still the same.
0: What, tell me about the Halterman or tell us about the Halterman nugget. What's What was that? Like the... Well,
7: um, it was it weighed about 285 kilos wow. and in that was 93.2 t- kilos uh, which is about 3,000 Troy ounces. The actual specimen um, was 1.4 mm. cent- mm. uh, mm. meters high yeah. and about um, 60 centimeters wide. And, and the gold value today would be something in the um, area of $5.5 million in one piece.
0: That's a good thing to stub your toe on. Uh, does it still exist or did they melt it no, down? Oh, dear. It, it,
7: it only saw the light of day for about a week because the elders had time booked at one of the batteries. And uh, although Holterman wanted to actually buy it from the shareholders they wanted the gold out of it so of there are photographs of it and we actually have um, a model of it um, in Hill End and it's going to be relocated into one of the parks as part of our big day of celebration.
0: Someone will knock it off you watch um. Oh, they,
7: don't. <laughs> well, they won't get very far. It's made of concrete. <laughs> so, Lorraine, that's on, the,
0: that's on the 22nd of October in Hill End, is it?
7: That's right. All and right. if people just want to Google Hill End 150, we have a dedicated uh, webpage and we just like people to register if they're coming. It's a free event, but we need to know because Hill right. End... Is an hour from Bathurst and Mudgee, and we need to get things like coffee carts and portaloos, and we just want to know all the important things. So we just want to know (laughs) exactly. Exactly.
0: All right, Lorraine. (laughs) Good on you, and and good luck with that. And uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, people can get in touch with you and uh, at Hill End. Is that what you want?
7: Uh, Yeah. um, Well, if they get in touch through the website, all right. And just um, Hill End one fifty. GLN 150 will find
0: us. Good on you. Nice to talk to you, okay. Lorraine. Thank you. Yes,
7: we'll catch up again.
0: Thanks, Ian. Bye. day. this
3: is Maka. Dale in a phone box at Mount Cravat. Yes, Dale. I'm sitting here actually looking at the number of the box. It's 07334924X2. And I've been going to try and ring complaints and tell them about our NBN, which we've been waiting for for two years. And it's quite an interesting story. Uh, six young Indians arrived on a Saturday morning to put in a new cable. Right. And they slaved away in the yard, dug up the yard, and came back on Sunday. And I said, yeah, you both do a good job. And I said, how long are you here for? And I said, oh, months. We don't know how long we're here for. And I said, Well, we're we putting fibre optic in. They said, Oh, yeah, well, yes, I didn't know. And so eventually, being an old electrician, I realised they were using um, coaxial cable. And I said, Well, I believe we can only have one phone. So eventually it was connected up by another guy. And last night we tried to ring the motor hospital because we have a, a girl in the hospital. And after uh, four hours or so, the phone just went on the fritz. So I came down to this phone box and, and rang, uh, Owen, you, you due loyalty to you and your, that's course, the fact that we get done. free phone calls. <laughs> and, and so therefore I rang complaints in the Philippines or Hong Kong or India <laughs> and I reported the fact that our phone wasn't working. Oh, so here I am and the sun's shining, the rain stopped and the sun's shining and I'm standing in a shelter. A phone <laughs> shelter. That's
0: right. That's what the I, lady I said. It's a,
3: it's a lovely word, a shelter.
0: <laughs> what, wasn't it?
3: But at age eighty-eight, I thought, well, I've got to face the terrors of coming to the public phone and complaining again. So I thought, well, I'm here. i will re- give you a
0: ring. Well, you've told Australia and you've told the world, Dale. Now, isn't, <laughs> isn't it interesting? And I, I thought that was just in a magnanimous move by Telstra and NBN to say, look. We're going to give you the phone boxes that we haven't knocked down already, and they're going to be free, and you can call anywhere. But I think it's because the bloody phone system is not working. So there's so exactly. many, so many people who have to use, or there's no coverage where they around, around Australia. So that's the only reason. No altru, altruism from Telstra's point of view. It's just the phone you have when you haven't got a phone. If you know what I mean.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Ah yes it's 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 a big world but I just don't understand the addiction that these mobile phones have got.
0: Oh well you can see you see the trouble and and all it's, the the kids uh, there's that story about kids at a at a, a very influential public uh, private school well, aren't they all you know yeah, pay big yeah. dough and all the kids are getting into trouble for being you know um, vile, as one of the headlines said, and and the reason is the online, the network, the mobile phone. That's how they do all this sort of stuff with, uh, you know, um, all the, and you know, when's the penny going to drop that you know there's pluses and minus. But oh, but look what you can do on the internet. Look what what you can do. But look at all the look at all the downside. And I don't know. and and as I said last week with the NBN. Everybody in their house all around Australia, doesn't matter who they are, big shots or whatever, has got two modems under their little table and heaps of cable everywhere. And it's just like a huge mess. And they've had to get electricians to come in and connect the power to that place because there's no power there. So they run an extension lead. This is to have the bloody phone on. Exactly. Um, And every house everywhere has got this mess of modems and cable and Shoved under some table or under a chair somewhere, it just seems to me that in the in twenty twenty, yeah, we're talking well, about artificial intelligence. Duh,
3: <laughs> really? Yeah, I laughed at Patrick about that one, but the other bloke that amused me was the guy at Springbrook with the goanna. I, I love that story.
0: <laughs> and he says it doesn't get any better. That's what he was basically saying. I'm out here having a cup of tea, and this well, morning, I've, got, I've uh,
3: got a son. He's up at Springbrook, yeah. and he he doesn't get much coverage at all. He's he's. Uh, but he's well. He's he... actually on the Garden of Eden, uh, overlooking Wollumbah.
0: But has he got a phone box, Dale?
3: No, no there's no phone box there. But uh, <laughs> no, it, it's quite an experience. But I really, uh, I think we've got another addiction we didn't really need.
0: Exactly. Well, at least you got the phone box, mate. And it's n- nice to t- watch it like in Mount Gravatt this morning. Well, it's
3: lovely here. The b- sky is blue and the sun's shining in my shelter. <laughs> I would hate to be here in the rain. It's great to talk.
0: Great to talk to you, mate. You just stay there. All right, mate. And
3: th- Thank you. And I've often wanted to call you, but thanks for the privilege.
0: Yeah. Well, look. While you're there, make some more phone calls. It's all, all free, I'm, mate. Well, I'm
3: going to, going to ring India now. <laughs> it's an eighteen hundred number. All right. But she she did tell me last night <laughs> all I had to do was go back home. So I did that. I went back home and I climbed under the TV set where the motor is, and all the lights were on. And I found a reset button that said two pair and I pushed that and uh, we still got no phone.
0: Uh,
3: I, uh, I wish Malcolm Turnbull was here. I, I'd talk to him <laughs> severely.
0: <laughs> oh, no. No, no. Don't start me. All right, good, <laughs> good on you, Dale.
3: Bye-bye. See you, mate.
0: This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News. Tony Ailing is a marine biologist who first donned his snorkel and flippers, I reckon, about 60 years ago. And as you would when you're doing things like diving for that length of time, you mix it with crocs and sharks and jellyfish, plus waters of all types, cold and murky. It's a great life. But much of that 60 years for Tony has been spent diving on the Great Barrier Reef. And I always value his insights. Just recently, he celebrated 39 years of surveying on Snapper Island. Where is that? What did he see? Well, he's on the line, and he'll tell you all about it. Tony Allen. Good morning.
8: Good morning, Macca.
0: Tell us where Snapper Island is.
8: It's just off the Daintree River entrance, where we used near, where we used to live up on the Daintree River, just north of Port Douglas, bit north of Cairns.
0: And what's so important, or what's so good about Snapper Island?
8: Well, it just happened to be our favourite place to go when we had a day out on the sea in the boat and we'd take the girls there from when they were very young and play on the beaches, go diving, generally enjoy ourselves, picnic on the beaches, under the rainforest canopy. So we decided that it would be very good to get regular surveys done there and persuaded the Marine Park Authority that it would be a good idea to fund that. So we've done them for many, many years.
0: And what do you find when, you know, that's a fair whack of time, isn't it? I mean, it's only a short amount of time, but in lots of ways it's a long time. Yes,
8: well, it's short in terms of the reef there. I mean, the reef has existed around that uh, island for about 6,000 years since sea levels reached their current state. And there's corals there that would have been there when Captain Cook sailed past, some of the huge boulder corals, parades corals. But it's getting to be quite a long survey of the state of the reef, so that's very useful.
0: How long does a coral live
8: for? Well, it depends. Some of the big corals that are obvious individuals, like the big round boulder corals, They've been found up to sort of 18 metres across and they only grow very slowly. So they could be, you know, 500 to 1,000 years old.
0: Well, like some of those mighty trees that we hear
8: about. That's right. But then it's very difficult to tell the age of a coral. I mean, they they have indeterminate growth. So they just keep growing and get larger and larger. And the clumping ones and the staghorn ones just spread out over a bigger and bigger area. So you you can sometimes, when we've been doing our surveys, you'll run out a a 50 metre tape and it's all on the same coral colony. It's just amazing, hundreds of year old coral. And the thing that you get to find out when you're doing things like uh, looking at one place for almost 40 years, like Snapper Island, is that there's huge fluctuations in the coral cover, just natural events like floods and cyclones, crown-of-thorns outbreaks, bleaching events, just cause huge changes in the coral cover. So the mean coral cover, the average coral cover on Snapper Island, has varied between about 15%, fairly low, up to 90%, which is just a fantastic reef that's almost completely covered in living coral, colourful coral.
0: Now, you say the coral's been there for 6,000 years. Would you describe coral as a resilient sort of
8: an animal? Yeah, our view is that corals are very resilient. I mean, the reef has been out here, the Great Barrier Reef has been out here for, well, there's debate about that, but at least half a million years. And over that time, there's been tremendous changes. Like only 14,000 years ago, there was no barrier reef as we now know it, because sea level was 120 metres or so below what it is now at the height of the ice age. There would have been a reef, but it would have just been a, a narrow fringing reef round the edge of the continental slope where it drops off into really deep water straight off the shore, it would have been. And it would have had waves pounding onto it with the southeastlies and all the water pouring off it from the land. So it would have been a very different environment to what the reef experiences now and the reef then would have been dry limestone hills on the coastal plain
0: it's hard to contemplate isn't
9: it
8: yeah so the reef that we see now has only formed over the last six or five to 14 thousand years as sea level rose again when the ice melted
0: Tony I mentioned earlier that you'd been diving with your snorkel gear etc and whatever for 60 years do you still enjoy it
8: I still love it, Macca. I mean, we both really, there's nothing we enjoy more than going out and getting in the water and wandering around and just looking at stuff underwater. I mean, it's such a different world. So interesting. You always see something amazing, something you haven't seen before.
0: I spoke to a long-distance swimmer a couple of weeks ago and he was swimming the English Channel, but he's going to swim around the world. And he said one of the, he was Scottish or Australian Scottish, but one of the things he was really scared of was the um, lion's mane jellyfish or something.
8: Are they up there your way? Oh yes, we get influxes of lion's mane jellyfish quite regularly. They can be up to sort of half a meter across the bell of them, and their tentacles might be up to. 10 metres long when they expand out, and they have hundreds of tentacles. So if you uh, blunder into them, they can give you a bit of a sting, but they're nowhere near the sort of toxicity of things like uh, blue bottles or box jellies.
0: Your report on Snapper Island, what would you say about how Snapper Island's faring at the moment? Some parts of the reef, I suppose, can be thriving and some parts can be doing poorly.
8: That's right. Wherever you happen to be has a very different history. There's been massive fluctuations. At present, it's on an upward fluctuation and starting to look really amazing again. If anyone wants to see what it looks like, I've actually done a little YouTube video on Snapper Island. So if you just search for Tony Ailing on YouTube, you'll be able to look at what the reef is like now and some of the history of it. Great
0: to talk to you this morning, Tony. Thank you.
8: Thanks, Macca.
0: Marine biologist, Tony Ailing. This is the All Over News, and today, the last day, at the National Wool Museum in Geelong, you'll see the most amazing display of what human beings can do with a piece of string or a length of wire, as the International Guild of Knot tires strut their stuff. Knots and tyres, etc have held and are holding up the world. You watch at a building site, as big slabs of concrete, I mean huge pieces. Go skyward. Knots, ties and slings are the answer. The closest most of us come to that is tying our shoelaces. If you get a chance, get down to the Wool Museum today and just have a look. You'll be amazed. One of the knot tires, plying his trade or craft, or it's really an art form. Is Darren Sampier. He's on the line. Good morning, Darren. Good morning, Ian. When did you start to um, tie yourself in knots? Can I put it that way?
10: Uh, sure. It was back in the, the 70s. I bought a key ring for my brother for a birthday present, one of those last-minute things. I've got to get him something. From that moment on, I wanted to know how to tie it. It was a knotted keyring. came across a couple of books in the early 80s, learned how to tie a few of those knots, and then came across the International Guild of Knot Ties in 92 when I joined there and have gone through from there uh, with uh, the help of a... A lot of other people who are uh, far more skilled than I am.
0: People do lots of things. They restore old GT Falcons and do all sorts of things. What is it about tying knots that keeps you interested?
10: There's uh, so many different, I guess, ways of uh, combining different knots. If you think of um, a rope hanging uh, under a bell to ring the bell, old ones would have a series of knots that would go down and uh, end in, say, a a ball or something like that at the bottom. Uh, But the the series of knots uh, can be completely different. So every bell rope... It uh, can be quite different, or you can follow a recipe and make up one exactly the same as someone else. So say maybe something from history or whatever. But there's just so much, so many different ways you can tie knots and develop uh, something and create something out of it.
0: I was most amazed when I went to one of these displays some years ago at the books about it, and the Chinese are very big on knot tying. And it's it's mathematical, isn't it, really, in lots of ways?
10: Uh, Some of it is quite mathematical in uh, developing how to tie some of the more complicated knots, uh, and even down to, well, how much rope do I need to cut off, or how much cord do I need to cut off to actually tie the knot? So there are a number of different algorithms that some people have developed. But some just just start working and develop things from scratch. So it doesn't have to be mathematical, and you, and, and, uh, you don't have to be mathematical to do it.
0: But you can make all sorts of things. You, they make wallets, and it's leather, and all sorts of things. They make the most amazing things, and you really have to see them. How does somebody do that? It must take a lot of time. Do you do that sort of stuff? Do you make all sorts of things now?
10: Uh, Well, as I said, I've been doing it for about 30 years now in the Guild, uh, and over that time I've done decorative things like dull ropes, uh, key rings. Even cats of nine tails, not decorative, I guess, but uh, interesting to, to have a go at. To boat fenders, splicing, halyards and things like that, uh, down to just knowing how to tie a truckie's hitch, going along to the tip and mine knots come undone while everyone else is struggling to get their their load untied. You know, it's just it's a, that sort of thing. It's, it's all part and parcel of learning all these different facets.
0: And it's a very practical thing, isn't it too? And it's something that hasn't disappeared whilst technology has you know taken us to the moon and beyond. You still need to be able to tie simple knots or not simple knots, but good knots, as I said, to raise great heavy loads. All around the world, and it's just, it really goes back to the basic things when somebody found a bit of twine and started knotting it together.
10: Well, that's correct, yes. Safer when you know what you're doing. You think about a rock climber uh, raising themselves, they've got to tie their knots exactly the same way every time. Uh, if they're going to uh, do it safely.
0: People can see this amazing display of all sorts of, well, weaving and knotting and whatever there today at the National World Museum in
10: Geelong. No one, I can guarantee none of the public that came in would have felt disappointed that they hadn't seen something technically brilliant in in some respects, enlightening pieces. Uh, It's not a quick thing to walk through. There's a lot to see. This is the second one we've held, and uh, we plan to do this every two years.
0: Darren Samphia, great to talk to you and happy tying yourself in knots. Can I say that? Thank you.
10: (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: That was Darren. Uh, This is the All Over News and we always bring you news from all over. Bron's in uh, Browarina, Is that right, Bron?
11: Yes, maker. I'm camped up on the uh, banks of the Uh Barwon.
4: I've
11: um, come up here for work. I'm working at the little Aboriginal medical service. I rang you a little while ago and I was in Tea Tree. All oh, right Part of the thin blue line mate now i 'm SPAC filler up at for a
0: <laughs> so you you get around, and how's the barwon uh, river looking or need i ask
11: Oh, it's um actually it's come up since we've been here two weeks. My husband came up this time, so we've got the caravan camp out on the banks. Mm. At a lovely place called Beds on the Barwon, and the river's come up about two metres since we've been here.
0: Yeah, there's been a lot of weather around, hasn't there? And the El yeah. Nino, El Nino is uh, bringing rain, or you know, water down from Queensland. The Murray's running a banker, it's not, not flooding, well, but the, yeah, go on.
11: Walgett West today, and Walgett, the water that have, we haven't got the water all from Walgett yet, but it's there's heaps of water at Walgett. It's right up.
0: And there it's you coming go. Coming
11: up towards the edge of the road and everything. And
0: so, l- um, last time I was in Walgett, uh, the um, the the river river was dry. There was no water. I went out there yeah. looking at, uh, um, you know, um, what do they call them? Um, gum tree canoes, you know, carved in yeah, the in yeah. the things, and uh, there was no water in the river at all.
11: Well, just where we're camped, I'd say that the river's probably about a hundred meters across.
0: Yeah, there you go.
11: Yeah, spreading out. You can see it spreading out into the gullies and that at the back. So, so it just flows with us,
0: Yes. But. Tea tree to Barawarana. You get around, Bron.
11: Yeah, yeah. I'm just sort of. um And then in November, I'll be up in Lajamanu, which is um northwest of Catherine.
0: Yeah. Wish I could come. Yeah.
11: uh <laughs> your back. And we could probably find you a job.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I'm a handy handyman of sorts, <laughs> have screwdriver will travel and hammer. Yeah, I can I can break things pretty well and well, take them to bits. You could
11: drive the ambulance. You could, uh, yeah. you know, plenty of jobs we could find you to do.
0: Yeah. All right, Bronnie, anything <laughs> else to good. report?
11: Uh, no, we're going to, well, we were hoping to get some Nindy Lakes, but we won't be able to go the way we wanted to because the river, we can't follow the river, so we might head out to Broken Hill and have a look at the wildflowers and, and, then head down to try and get to Menindee and, and then go home.
0: And take in some art. Broken, take your, take yeah, in,
11: it's beautiful. Yes, yeah,
0: I'll say. Brian, I've great,
11: been to a whole heart gallery out there. It's lovely.
0: Yes, I'll say. Uh, great to talk to you, Brian.
11: All right. Have a lovely Sunday, Maker, and happy Father's Day.
0: Yeah, you too.
11: Bye.
0: Bye. Martin's in Wendellini. Good morning, Martin
9: day, Ian. It's uh, uh, Wingalina or Irinju is the local term here. It's about um, four and a half hours southwest of yeah. Uluru.
0: Yeah, my yeah. my guest, Dr. Sandridge, said, what what are you doing in Wingelina, which is the question I was just about to ask.
4: Nickel laterite.
9: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm here helping out with uh, the local media service. It's called uh, Nananjara, or NG Media. Mm. Uh, it's a... Little radio station based here. It's got uh, about ten remote stations based all throughout mm-hmm. the Nananjara lands, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm here helping out the team for a little bit. Yesterday was an exciting day, though. We travelled up to Warrakuna a couple of hours away, for the for the local sports finals. Um, so I thought people might might be interested in the uh, the actual sports results that came out of here. pretty pretty good games between the men's uh, footy teams and the, the women's um, softball teams.
0: Uh, well, sport, you know, it doesn't do it for me anymore, but I, it's just, it's the glue that holds the community together, isn't it really? Especially out there.
9: You know what? People came from everywhere to watch and it was really exciting games too. And I'm a bit like you make it too the sport. You know, I watched the big games on, you know, TV from that, sort of stuff, but this was exciting. And I found myself, you know, on the sidelines, like everyone else yelling along, uh, you know, encouraging while well, I was going for ear injury, um, uh, during yesterday 's uh, games, which sadly we went down in the last minute, so that 's how exciting do you want a game to be and in the uh, the the uh, the softball with the women played really strongly there was Kuna, uh taking on uh Warburton and uh, the home team there Warrakuna won nine to three but last year they switched around <laughs> and Warburton won so it was that that sort of classic sort of sports rivalry but you know people were involved great atmosphere. Uh, passionate sports lovers, um, but I, I don't know whether people get the idea of what the playing conditions are like. But you might have seen the dirt ovals, the yeah. you know the the, the dusty, uh, the wind blowing up the dust and that sort of stuff, and just just passion on the field um, as well. Terrific stuff, really.
0: Martin, I, I was just listening as you're talking and listening to those marvellous names like Wingelina and Warakuna and Nun- Nana so is, is that how you pronounce it, Nana
9: Nun Nun
0: Nunanjara.
9: very very close to Pitjantjara lands, APY lands to our south, and this is NPY lands or Nunanjara lands here. Yeah,
0: it's a love. It's a great word. It's just very fluent, isn't it? Nunanjara. I love it. I love the word. I love the sound of that word.
9: Well, well, I I love the words too. There. I'm only here for a short term sort of thing. My third visit um, out here to the team. To uh, pass on some some radio skills and, and other media skills, but uh, picking up the language and there's one word you need to know out here, and that's palia, which I think goes for everything. Which is okay, great, you know, <laughs> you'll be right, those sort of things. So you have got to pick up that one first.
0: What's it called? What's the word? Palia. Palia.
9: P-A-P-A-L-Y-A. Palia. P a p a l y a.
0: Palia. Palia. But it's uh, it's a bit like um, uh, what's that Hawaiian word when you say aloha? It means hello and goodbye as well. It's. <laughs> Well, it's, a little,
9: it's a little bit like that it's it's a bit of a so almost a bit of a fix all but um otherwise am trying to get my words my 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 mouth around uh, my ear around uh, a couple of the, the local terms as well but we the, the radio station and the, the media centre we work for is here to promote and to 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 broadcast if you like local culture as well so we do a lot of in fact about 99% of the broadcasting is in nunoja language for the people here um sure we play music and create music and songs in the media center which is terrific Mm. but also the announcers uh come on and and speak in language to their local audience so i don't often have a great deal of understanding of what they're talking about but i know they're talking about local things community events community issues like whether it be mining or when doctors are coming to town and flying in for, for various services that sort of stuff so it's really important ground-level stuff, and, and just as important as the sporting results, sure. Uh, that people know what's going on. Yep. People use Facebook and that sort of stuff too, but, you know, the radio is yeah, terrifically important.
0: I'll say, and, uh, and the other thing that you're mentioning there, I wonder how hard it is for uh, us who've grown up with English as a first language to learn uh, and to understand, say, an Aboriginal land, a language like Nungurra, Nungurra. sorry. Uh,
9: uh, uh, well, look, I, I've travelled a bit and I t- try to pick up language wherever I go, and I, I should try a little bit harder here. I guess it is that thing about bending your ear and having people who've got a little bit of time in their day to spend that with you. There are resources around to learn Manangro language, and there's uh, quite a few non, uh, uh, well, what, non-Aboriginal people who are here who. who certainly pick up the language in more time than me me. so it's possible I think we just got to apply ourselves and I think there's always that great thing whether you're in Rome or you know anywhere around the world yeah that trying a little bit of the language does reap its rewards Um, you're sure you might mangle it along the way with accent or lip movement or something like that but you know the, the rewards you get are certainly there. Martin, great to
0: talk to you, um, and uh, yeah, that would have been great to see the footy there at Wingerina.
9: You know, it was terrific, and uh, good luck in Corica, I know that area well, and um, uh, it's it's well into recovery. They'll be pleased to see you.
0: Thanks very much, Martin. Nice to talk. Okay, see you. Ya. ya. Bye.
9: G'day, Macca. How are you?
0: Yeah, good.
6: Mate, Mark's my name. I spoke to you a few year ago when I was getting ready to go over the Little League World Series um, for baseball. Oh, and um I just got to return from it this year i, I returned on wednesday this year and um, um it was um it was something to behold that the the twelve year old tournament and um I walked out one night to do a game and there was eighteen thousand three hundred people
3: <laughs> Wow.
0: so uh, mark what do you do are you are you a pitcher of uh, what do you do you're a
6: I'm an umpire. Oh,
0: you're an umpire. Right, I, yeah. oh, I remember. I remember. That was a while yep. ago.
6: It was. It was back in 2020. I was supposed to go over and then that little thing called COVID hit. Mm. And um, I just got back on Wednesday mm. and um, I spent two weeks over there and got treated like royalty. And there was 20 teams from around the world and and watching 12-year-olds play baseball um, like adults, was just a, unbelievable. It's the most pure form of baseball I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, no egos. They go out there and they just want to play. If someone gets hurt, they go and check their, their opposition mate. And you see them all playing together after the games. And So and, what's um, what's
0: the competition? Is it a national, American national Schoolboys boys or kids? What's the story? What is it?
6: No, the, it's... Little League's played in 80 countries around the world. Oh, yeah, it's Um, Little League, is it right? Yep, I know. Well, I used to
0: play Little League when I was a kid.
6: Yep. Did you really? Yep. Yep, and and what they did is they have a a knockout and then they pick the best 20 teams in the world and um, they go and play there. There's um, 12 from across America, I think, 12 umpires from across America and then there was four other umpires. There were 16 of us and we just went over there and had a ball for two weeks. And um, Hawaii ended up winning.
7: Hawaii, but,
6: um, wow! Yeah, Hawaii ended up winning, and I actually um, got some fantastic photos. And someone sent me a photo of a game I did. It was the second, second night of competition. It was an eight o'clock game. I walked out onto the stadium and and turned around, and there it was: eighteen thousand people in front of me. And Gee. and it was it was an atmosphere that you just can't explain. And to remember that it's only twelve-year-old kids playing in front of you. Yeah,
0: it's like it was... everything in America. They've got critical mass over there. There's 350 million of them. So it's like college, um, college base, college football and stuff. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. But do you think, oh, it's just you know school kids, you know, or college kids playing. But it's it's huge. College football over there is huge, and baseball. Uh, I love their enthusiasm. I love their enthusiasm in in America.
6: Mate, there was there was a team from Australia, there a team from Italy, a team from Mexico, um, Euro, um, sorry Puerto Rico, uh, Panama. Um, it was just it was just incredible to see these kids, but I think the, the memory for me was I had to do a game between Australia and Italy one day, and I was standing underneath waiting to be um, introduced. and they played the Australian national anthem and I was standing there looking at the Australian team from under the stadium. And to hear your National Anthem played in another country, I now know what, what elite sportsmen experience. It was, it, it was, I, I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking of, but I was standing there looking at the kids, standing there watching their flag or watching our flag and listening to the National Anthem play. It was, it was emotions that you just can't explain.
0: There you go, uh, Mark. Uh, tell me, what's the status of baseball here in Australia, Mark?
6: Well, it's not huge, but I mean, we've got some pretty good talent that gets snapped up by the Americans. Um, it's I'm, I'm in a am in Newcastle, and it's a tiny little association. But mate, it's about the kids having fun. It doesn't matter how big it is. It's just watching kids go out there and have fun. And and if we can if we can get more kids having fun instead of watching screens, that's what it's all about.
0: Exactly. All right, Marky. Good on you, mate. Um, I wish I'd have been there with you. Um, it's a great game. I love bas- um, baseball. I loved it. used to love it. I wasn't much good. I was all right, but, but I love playing it.
6: All right, mate. Well, thank you for your time, Mecca. It's
0: a pleasure, mate. Good on you.
1: You've been
4: listening to an ABC podcast.